Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is runner and coach Jason Fitzgerald of Strength Running. You probably remember Jason from his appearance back in season two, talking about how to use the track as an endurance runner. And this week, Jason is back to talk to us all about how to master a faster 5K. Whether you have extensive background in running cross country in the 5,000 meters when you were younger, or you're a runner who started running 5Ks and then like haven't run one in years because you've only been running the half marathon and marathon distances, no matter. There are so many ways you can leverage the skills and systems that you need to truly master this short distance that will also translate into what you're trying to do at longer distances. So if you think that the 5k is some sort of throwaway distance, think again, it takes a lot of practice and skill to run this race distance to the best of your ability. Jason, welcome back to the show. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah. Excited to talk about the 5k today before we get started. If anybody is unfamiliar with who you are, go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure thing. Uh, I have been running since 1998, uh, so I've been running for a very long time. I'm dating myself. Since the Clinton administration. (laughs) Since the Clinton administration, right. Uh, I usually say that when I go skiing. I haven't skied since the Clinton administration. But yeah, I was a a cross-country and track runner in high school and college, uh, kept competing competitively after college. And now I'm coaching, I host the Strength Running Podcast and YouTube channel, and my whole shtick is trying to help runners improve and get faster. So I'm really hoping that we can do that today for anybody training for a 5K. Heck yeah. And before we get started, let's get some of the uh, terminology right, because we're talking about the 5K, which is the road race distance. The 5,000 meter race is when you run that distance on a track. Am I I correct in saying that? You are correct in saying that. A distinction probably only the geekiest of track nerds would want to make. But yes, usually when you say 5K, you mean a road race. And when you're talking about a track event, you say the 5,000. It's still exactly the same distance. Probably when you run a road race, it actually might be a little bit longer than 5,000 meters just because of the USATF course measurement protocol adds a little bit of a buffer. So if anybody wants to run the fastest race possible, you definitely want to do it on a track. I don't know. I, you know, I watch track meets and especially, you know, watching world-class runners run. And sometimes you'll see runners two abreast in lane one or somebody's kind of on the line between lane one and lane two. And I, in the back of my mind as, you know, a recreational runner thinking, don't they know how much extra distance they're covering being in lane two instead of lane one? But of course they know exactly what they're doing and I don't, but it's always interesting to see that, that yes, the minimum distance you're going to cover is going to be 5,000 meters or five kilometers irrespective of whether you're on the track or the road. Right. I think I'm getting flashbacks to my college track coach yelling, tuck in, tuck in when I'm running any of these races, because you're absolutely right. If you were to run a track race in lane two, it's going to be longer than the actual event distance. So you definitely want to only get out into lane two, preferably on a straightaway to pass someone. And then when you're running the turns, you definitely want to hug that, uh, that turn as closely as you can all the strategy that goes into running on a track. 
So the one of the reasons, well, obviously because you're incredibly knowledgeable and of course, given your competitive background, to talk to you about this distance specifically, was something that you said, and I know you've said something similar to this over the time that I've known you. I'm gonna quote you directly here from something you posted on Instagram about three months Uh-oh. ago. A fast, a fast 5K is just as impressive as running a marathon. It's one of the chance that changed my mind meme, right? Why? Tell me about that. Tell me why you think. Yeah, I, I really think a fast 5K is a work of art. It is something that demands not only a high level of fitness, but also a high level of precision when it comes to racing and pacing. And it, it can often be very difficult to put together a fast middle distance race performance because if you get one thing wrong, the whole race sort of falls apart because you only have a short amount of time to get it right. You know, and, and you can really see this in the really short track events like the 800 or the mile where, you know, if, if you go out too slow for the first 400 meters of a mile, you really lost the opportunity to run a personal best if that was your goal in the race. So there's a smaller margin for error in the shorter races, which makes a really great performance in a race like a 5K even that more impressive. And and I was very careful in saying, I'm very impressed by a fast 5K compared with someone just running a marathon. I, I think we've now learned most people can get in shape within six to 12 months and complete a marathon. I, I firmly believe that. I do not think they are, you know, this crazy race distance that you have to put on a pedestal uh, because you can get in some volume and go run a marathon. And while I think any marathon finish is a huge accomplishment that everyone should be proud of, I'm a little bit more impressed by a well put together fast 5K. I will say the 5K creates a very specific kind of suffering and having suffered in both scenarios, right? Having suffered through 5Ks and suffered through the marathon, I sometimes feel that the 5K is all the suffering of a marathon packed into 3.1 miles. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with you. It's it's really brutal. It's sort of like, you know, do you want to stick your hand in a boiling pot of water for five minutes or would you rather sit in a 107 degree or in other words, a little bit too hot hot tub for two hours? I don't know. They they both sound pretty terrible. You're not going to feel good either way. Yeah. Now, again, the whole, like, before we get all the whole, like, what do you mean? Look, yes, all these distances are impressive. But when we're really going after these personal bests, especially these shorter distances, there is a very, like you said, slim margin of error when it comes to running a uh tactically sound race that's going to allow you to run your fastest times. And although the marathon specifically has its own unique challenges in that you need to hydrate, you need to fuel, right? You need to have that endurance. You know, I've run marathons where I've I've made mistakes in the marathon and be able to recover and, and still finish strong. Like you've said at the outside of this outset of this conversation, in shorter distances, you you rarely can recover from mistakes. Yeah, and I think one of the big reasons for that is because when we think of the skill aspect of running, I really believe one of the hardest skills every runner has to learn is the skill of pacing. And like you said, if you make a couple pacing mistakes in a marathon, as long as they're not too egregious, you can recover and still actually run a really good race. But 
If you make a pacing error in a 5K, you probably will not be able to recover unless it's very, very small. And that's because when you're running a 5K, you're like right on the line of what you can potentially do for 3.1 miles. And, you know, if you're someone, I'll just use myself for an example. When I ran my PR, when I was really trying to be very precise about my pacing, I had a buddy pace me in that 5K. And we went out one second too fast over the first 400 meters. And I was upset with my friend over that because I thought that this might put my race in jeopardy. And if I was three or four seconds too fast, it probably would have ruined the entire race. And so you can very easily just ruin your chances of running a really good race by getting a little excited just in the first 45 to 60 seconds of a 5K. So it does require more precise pacing, which means a higher level of skill. So that when I say it's more impressive, I mean someone who can really put together a good fast 5K, they have worked on that skill and I am very impressed by that. I think for many runners, the skill of pacing is one that they really struggle with the most. And I know that you and I recently had a conversation on your podcast about workouts and faster running and how and where that fits into your training. And I said something to the effect of, you know, Jason, most recreational runners can't tell the difference between, you know, being at seven minutes or 7.05 or 7.10 pace. They just can't, right? Um, And, but that doesn't mean you can't learn how, right? It doesn't mean you can't learn the skill of pacing. And now a lot of runners ask me, well, then how do you learn? How do you learn how to pace yourself in this way? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think there's there's no one right, correct answer. There's There's a lot of different opportunities. And I think the runners who get the best at pacing take advantage of all of the opportunities. So the worst way you can learn good pacing is just to be married to your GPS watch and constantly looking at it and and almost taking exactly what it tells you at face value. Your pace is going to be variable, especially on an easy run. That watch is really just sort of giving you your total time and an average pace, and the individual mile splits are a little bit up in the air. I don't really like to trust it too much, even though it's probably pretty accurate. What I like to do to learn pacing is is threefold. Number one, I just like to get a lot of race experience. And that's only possible with shorter races because like you you can imagine, you can't run six marathons in a year or you could, but you can't really race them. You can't really do them at your fullest potential. And they're so long that I don't think they teach you as much about how to fine tune your paces. But if you were racing, let's say the mile or 1500 meters, 3K or two miles, the 5K, 8K, 10K, all of these middle distance races, like we said earlier, you know, it requires more fine tuning and pace control. And if you can get somewhat proficient at racing those distances, your sense of pacing is going to be far better than someone who's only relying on their GPS watch, who's running two marathons a year, just because you are thinking about pace a lot more substantially than, you know, this other hypothetical runner. So let's run a lot of middle distance races. Let's realize, you know, what happens if I go too fast? What happens if I go too slow? What happens if I try to run the most even race possible? And you can really play around with all these 
pacing strategies and learn how it impacts your body, how you know a certain pace feels at the very beginning of a race, how a certain pace feels at the end of a race when you're under high fatigue. You learn a lot from that process. You get a lot of really valuable data. The other way that I think is really helpful at, at learning paces is just to run your workouts on a track. Now you probably, you know, you can't run a hill workout on a track. You probably shouldn't do a fartlek workout on a track, but you can run any distance on a track, including a tempo run or, or any sort of, you know, faster repetitions on a track so that you can really control for distance. That's what the track is for. It is a wonderful training tool for giving you exact distances. And as soon as you have exact distances, you can throw your GPS watch in the trash, use a stopwatch, go get a $20 Timex, and now you will actually have, down to about a tenth of a second, your time over a certain distance, and you can use that to calculate your pace. And if you're running a variety of workouts on the track, on the regular, for a couple years, you're going to get really, really good at pacing. So don't be afraid to, to jump the fence at your high school or, or slip through the, you know, the, the chain link fence or something like that. I'm fully in favor of that as long as you're being respectful because I think everyone should have access to a track if they want to learn proper pacing. I love that. And I think the point that you mentioned there, as you kind of threw it away in the end of your comment, is that if you do this for a couple years... Yeah, you're going to get really good at pacing. Uh, I think so often with things that are running related, we expect, well, I, I've been I've been doing that for a couple of weeks now. Why am I not an expert at whatever it is, right? And, and you're saying that this is going to take repetition and investment of your time and your mental energy in order to really master this. Step. Yeah, 100%. Because look, I mean, if you are a new runner and you have this idea in your head that you want to qualify for the Boston Marathon, a very lofty goal a goal that's shared among many runners. You probably have to understand it's going to be a multi-year adventure to qualify for Boston. You know, I think it's hard to run a really good marathon because it requires so many years of patient aerobic uh, building of the aerobic metabolism. So, you know, if if you can devote a couple of years to running a marathon, a good marathon, I think at the same time, we can be doing workouts on the track we can be going to the track uh, and running some of these middle distance races so that you can gain that valuable experience. Um, and, you know, I'll just mention a, a final way of really understanding your pace that's distinct from workouts and races. Um, I like to actually go to the track on an easy run and just run one to four laps, maybe a quarter mile or a mile on the track. And I time it, but I don't look at my watch. And then I look at it afterward and I see what it is. I'm, so I'm sort of just experimenting. I'm sort of just saying, I'm going to run this easy effort. And I look down at my watch. I'm like, oh, I guess that was a 745 mile. Okay. And then, you know, when you do that three times a week for a year, you get pretty good at understanding what your easy pace is when you're not tired, when it's the day after a long run and you're just feeling a little depleted and a little, you know, fatigued or the day after a workout where you don't necessarily feel depleted, but your legs just feel really sore from the higher intensity work you did the day before. So understanding these paces, even on an easy run under a variety of different fatigue scenarios is another really valuable way of just learning how different paces feel. And ultimately what we're doing is we are mapping a pace onto an effort. 
so that you understand, okay, I understand all these efforts and I can get on the track and I can run this effort that I know is going to be my 5K pace because you've really fine-tuned the skill of pacing. And so those are a bunch of different ways that we can work on pacing. You know, all of them are um, long-term approaches. You know, you're not going to just learn how to pace yourself really well in a week or two. It does take some time, but once you do learn it, it's really hard to unlearn. One of the most important things to me as a runner is my health. I know that if I'm not supporting my health, I'm not going to perform the way that I want to perform when I'm training and racing. And that's why I've recently started including Prevenex in my daily routine. Prevenex makes clinically effective, clinically tested pharmaceutical grade supplements that promote longevity, performance, and everyday health. One of the things that's most important to me when I'm taking anything is to make sure that I'm actually taking what it says is in the bottle. And with Prevenex, that is the case. Unlike many commonly available supplements from your local drugstore, like Walgreens or CVS, you walk in, you buy it, it might actually not contain what you think it contains. Prevenex contains exactly what it says it contains because they test to make sure that it does. And it also contains the most effective and bioavailable forms of the things that it says that it contains. Win, win. And it might seem like a small thing, but the fact that their probiotic supplement does not need refrigeration and is still really high quality is like a big deal for me because I'm terrified of supplements that need refrigeration because I'm really afraid of forgetting and leaving them out and having them get spoiled. Not a concern here. And also for me, if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. This one I just leave on the counter and I remember to take it morning and night. Easy as that. Now you can try Prevenex for yourself and see if you feel the difference. Get 15% off your first order on Prevenex.com using code RUNEXP. That's code R-U-N-E-X-P on Prevenex.com. I love that you bring up pacing is not just for the hard stuff. Because I think that that really gets lost in, in the translation sometimes when we talk about learning how to pace yourself in a race environment. We really don't talk to our runners that often about learning how to pace yourself in other contexts or what those different paces and efforts feel like. Because, I mean, most of the work I do on easy runs is just making sure they're running slow enough to stay in their easy zone, right? But learning how to pace yourself in a variety of contexts, whether that's a recovery run or a nice steady aerobic run, right? Or it's your long run or, you know, all these things, or maybe it's your recovery interval in a workout, what all those different things feel like. You said you're just mapping all these different paces and effort levels on this big spectrum. And the more data and experience you have with that, the bigger your understanding of that is going to be. Yeah, 100%. And you know, Elizabeth, I'll never forget an analogy you used on my podcast, I think about a year ago. You were talking about how, you know, when you're a newer runner, you don't have very many gears. And everything is either hard or maybe kind of hard. (laughs) And then as you become a more advanced runner, as you gain experience, as you build fitness, you gain more gears. And now you have, this is my easy, very easy recovery effort here. This is my like more just easy, but not necessarily recovery. And then you have moderate and then you have hard. And then as you get more and more advanced, those gears continue to differentiate. And so you'll get to a point where you know, you can get on the track and just execute mile pace, two mile pace, 5k pace. And you're like a metronome almost because you've really done the work to understand these paces. And I, I'll point out, cause I think this is important is that I know we keep talking about pacing, but it's really about pacing yourself, not to a number, 
but pacing yourself to an effort or a distance, right? Because yes, it is true that like today I have a 5K pace of, I don't even know what it is, X something, right? But a year from now, my 5K pace will hopefully be a little bit different, but that effort's effort, that specific how I would pace myself won't change that much. I'm not gonna drop five minutes of my 5K time in a year, right? But you're saying is that I, I would then, through the work, intrinsically understand, am I running at the proper pacing effort level to go the distance at the pace I'm currently trying to achieve? Right. And this sort of speaks to the fact that even though we're talking about pacing, there usually is a range in which your pace is appropriate. So yes, you know, as a huge track nerd, I love to see super precise splits that map exactly to your PR in the event and then your goal pace for the event, because ultimately, you know, we all want to run a certain time. You know, you mentioned you're trying to run under 20 minutes in the 5k. So you have a very specific average mile pace in your mind that you've got to hit. And, you know, you're also absolutely right that your pace maps to an effort and, you know, when I say your, your PR 5k pace, what that really means is the maximum effort that you can sustain for 3.1 miles. Now everyone has a PR, right? And that PR represents the fastest you were able to run at your maximum effort. But if you had run that same race and you didn't get great sleep for three nights leading to the race, your 5k effort would be a slower pace even though it feels the same. So you should always be running what feels like 5K effort. And then the whole goal of us coaches and the athlete themselves is then to create the environment where that 5K effort turns in a 5K PR, which is based on a pace. I love that. So speaking of pacing, let's talk about the race itself. What are the most common mistakes that you see runners make when it comes to executing a 5K? Yeah, I think when it comes to executing a 5K, I think a lot of runners either treat it too much like a sprint or too much like an endurance race. So, you know, I just recently posted something about the 5K and and how I do love occasionally when runners challenge themselves and go out too fast because I think a lot of runners are somewhat conservative And I just love to see the 20% of times when going out a little bit too hard results in a breakthrough because sometimes runners are capable of a lot more than they think. And I like to take those risks every once in a while, especially in a race like the 5k where look, if it doesn't go well, you can run another 5k next weekend. It's not like the marathon where you might need months and months of months of recovery and then training for another attempt. So I think one of the big mistakes at executing a 5K is number one, going out really, really fast in the first mile and then dying a slow death on the track or on the road because most runners are used to either the half marathon or the marathon. And so they just have this idea in their head that this race is so short that you have to run so fast. And while that's partly true, now you know we get back to the part where it's very easy to mess it up. It's so easy to go out too fast and then, you know, you're running too far into that anaerobic well and you just have to slow down and and you never recover. So that is probably, I would say, the number two mistake. The biggest mistake is treating the 5K more like an endurance race. I field so many questions from runners who ask, 
you know, should I go out slower to help myself warm up? And the answer is no. The answer is we need to be running your goal 5K pace from step number one. We need to be ready to run your goal 5K pace right from the gun. And so that means, you know, when the gun goes off, you need to be ready to run a fairly high intensity. So the warm up that you do before the 5K needs to be much more involved than the warm up you do, say, before a marathon. You know, I think a good rule of thumb is the shorter and faster a race is, the more substantial the warm up has to be because you don't have any time to warm up in the race. You've got to get going, get to pace immediately, and then either run a very even race or set yourself up, hopefully, for maybe a nice little negative split at the end if you're feeling good. But I would say the biggest mistakes with execution are probably those two, like not appreciating how accurate the pacing needs to be. So then you either go out too fast or too slow. And this seems like it could be solved by a little bit more investment in time and learning how to pace properly, right? Because, you know, we've all been in race situations where we had the best of intentions and like, no, this is the pace I'm going to run. I'm really confident in this pace. And then the gun goes off, the beep goes off, whatever it was. Everybody just takes off and you take off and you look down and you're running 45 seconds per mile faster than you're supposed to. And, you know, then that little voice in the back of your head says, but maybe today is your day, so you don't slow down. And then of course, by halfway through mile two, you're just absolutely dragging your feet behind you because you've totally gone to the well <laughs> too early. Um, but through repetition and practice and understanding what those different paces and efforts feel like, it sounds like we can resolve a lot of this. Yes, we certainly can. And, and I think one of the great aspects of these shorter middle distance races, like I mentioned before, is you can just run more of them. You can race more frequently and Racing is a skill too. It's, it's partly pacing. It's partly like, you know, how you compete against others, where you make a move, um, how much mental toughness you have and, or, or how much anxiety you have about the race. So the more you can race, the more you develop this skill of racing. And, and I think one of the ways in which you can get really good at pacing these kinds of races um, is, is simply by doing a lot of them and, and really paying attention to your pacing during the race. You know, one of the reasons why I love running a 5k on a track, even though it's 12 and a half laps, it might be a little bit boring. I get it, but you can actually look at your splits every 200 meters or every 400 meters. And when you can check in with your pacing that frequently, you can course correct because a lot of the times, like let's say a marathon, you might go out fast, but you don't really know how fast you're running you know, for a couple minutes, maybe it takes your GPS watch a minute to sort of figure out what pace you're running. Uh, you don't actually have any super accurate splits until you get to the mile marker. And at that point, it may be too late. So running on a track allows you to check in and see what your pacing is in very small increments of distance. So you can fine tune that pacing and get back on track. You mentioned the warm up for the 5K. And yes, absolutely. The shorter the race, the longer the warm up needs to be. I know a ton of runners who are hesitant to warm up before a race because they're afraid that it's going to suck vital energy out of their bodies that they really, really need for that race. Tell us why that's wrong and why you do need to warm up very thoroughly before your 5K. Yeah. So I would agree with that sentiment if it was for the marathon or for some half marathoners who, who might be running you know, maybe let's say 215 or slower, they can use the early miles of the race to, to help themselves warm up. But 
When it comes to these short middle distance races, we need to be running our goal pace right from the gun. And, you know, I think anyone has probably had that experience of you go to the track or, or anywhere to run a workout. You didn't really do a good warm up. You do one or two reps and your body just feels terrible. You are not properly warmed up. You feel clunky. Your body fatigues too early. You're simply not primed for that level of intensity. And so that's exactly what that warm up should be doing, priming your body for a certain level of intensity. And and 5K pace is, you know, that's a that's a, like a VO2 max oriented pace. It's very hard. It's anaerobic. Um, you know, if it's done right, it is the maximum speed that you can maintain for 3.1 miles. And that's difficult. We need to be able to run that right from the beginning. And so, you know, we can, we can certainly start talking about the training for the 5k and, and how that will, will help you not feel so gassed with, uh, the warmup process, because if the training is right, you definitely should not feel depleted or gassed or tired in any way before you start the 5k. In fact, you should be feeling warm and, and just like ready and responsive. You feel like you get some snap or pop in your legs. You're bouncing down the track as you're doing your strides before the race. And you're just like ready to go because you've got to have your respiration and your heart rate elevated. You've got to have done some faster running through some strides. Maybe your warm up included a, a slight progression. All of those things are really going to metabolically prime you and, you know, open up your, your range of motion and, and really just make sure you're ready to run this high intensity immediately. Cause if you don't, you're not going to feel good. You're probably not going to race well. I do want to talk about the training. That's where I was going to go next, because obviously we can't run our best five Ks if we don't train for them. What do you typically see? I'm going to start with mistakes, right? Cause I feel like there's a lot of like, how can you do it correctly? But I, it's helpful to start with like, well, we typically see that maybe isn't done so correctly. What do you typically see as the mistakes that runners make when they are training for a 5K? Well, I think a lot of runners compare the 5K to the longer races and they say, well, look, I can wake up any day of the week and go run 5,000 meters. So how much training do I really have to do? You know, you start playing this game of like, well, I need at least 18 weeks to build my long run for the marathon to ensure that I can finish it. And so runners are much more likely to use a formal training plan or hire a coach for those longer races, because I think it just takes more overall fitness to just complete them. And it doesn't take more fitness to just complete a 5k. But that's one of the reasons why I actually think a fast 5k is quite impressive because you still need to do a lot of the things that you do for the marathon that you that you do for the 5K. So for example, I see a lot of runners who like never really run longer than eight or nine miles for their long run if they're training for a 5K. But you know, if you're gonna do a maybe a two, maybe three mile warm-up or so, maybe a 20-minute warm-up before a 5K race, you can see how now all of a sudden, when you're in the final mile of your 5K, you're getting close to the longest run you have done in this training cycle. And that's going to compound the fatigue you're experiencing. And I think it's very instructive when we look at some pro runners, not that we're going to do what they do, but you know, there's uh, Nick Willis is a New Zealand miler and he still does like 18 mile long runs when he's training for the 1500 meters. So 
Now, granted, we don't necessarily need to run that long, even for the 5K, but it shows us that these races do demand a high level of aerobic fitness. Uh, I, I'm not sure on the percentage of the 5K that is powered by the aerobic metabolism, but I believe even for the mile, it's like 50%. So 50% of your overall result in a race like a mile is, is from your aerobic training. So we still need to do a fair amount of it to get all those benefits. So I still like to see runners do a substantial long run when they're training for a 5K. So you're training for a 5K, Basically, like let let's let's make sure we're at least getting our long run distance into the double digits. I love to see 12 to 18 miles, depending on the capability of the athlete and, and their schedule and what they can do. But I really think it's only going to help to continue building that aerobic metabolism because that's giving you most of you know the performance in your 5,000 meter race. And I'm sure a bunch of people listen to this going, wait, what? <laughs> I have to run. I still have to do a long run when I'm doing 5K training, and it should probably be double digits and certainly over 90 minutes total. Yeah, I love this. So as you were expanding on that, I actually did some some Googling. Um, so looking at contribution of aerobic and anaerobic energy during maximal physical exercise in a 30-minute all-out effort, right? So if you were to go into the track and run 30 minutes all-out, 95% of your energy would be aerobically supplied. And if you were to run 10 minutes all out, right? So now we're in like 3K territory, right? That is 85% aerobic. These are still aerobically driven events, even though they burn like a mother at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and it's exactly why, you know, when I was running the 1500 meter and the 3K in college, I was still running 80 to 85 miles a week because if you want to run fast in these events, you sort of need to do it all. You need to have the endurance of a marathoner with the speed of a middle distance runner. Um, and so a another big mistake I see a lot of 5k runners, uh, incorporate into their training is, you know, they're not just like not doing the long run, but they don't do too many aerobic workouts like lactate threshold runs, you know, anything that's essentially lactate threshold or slower as a workout because, you know, they think the 5K is short and fast, so all their workouts have to be short and fast. And, you know, like we've just learned, most of the race is, is, is powered by the aerobic metabolism. So even in 5K training, yes, we've got to do long runs. Yes, we're going to do... Uh, tempo or lactate threshold runs, we are really going to build the metabolism, the aerobic metabolism throughout the entire training cycle. And the huge mistake I see is runners just running very intense workouts for like four months straight. And then they wonder why they didn't run a PR or, you know, they just kind of got burned out from their training. It's just because it was too intense. You know, we don't need to actually train that intensely for a 5k, um, even though it's a very intense race. So I think getting the balance right of endurance and aerobic oriented work with 5k pace and, and what I like to call support paces, you know, it would be like your 10k pace and your mile race pace, you know, all those paces should be within your training plan probably. Uh, and they're all really going to help you develop the specific fitness that you need for a distance like the 5,000. 
I love that. Now, to be fair, I think most of the listeners of this show are probably not in the 80 to 85 mile per week range. But I think the point that Jason's making is that you still need to run a lot, (laughs) right? And a lot's going to be different for every person. But, you know, this misconception that, oh, short distance, eh, eh, whatever, I'll do, you know, two or three fast workouts and then like go for a 60 minute easy jog on the weekends. Because one of the biggest mistakes I see runners make when training for a 5K is they only do really fast stuff. Um, and they neglect the, the aerobic building entirely and they're doing everything at 5k or 3k or mile pace, just like hammering and hammering and hammering and then wondering why they feel crappy all the time and can barely get to race day. Yeah. I'm a big fan of running easy, Elizabeth. You know, I don't like to make my running harder than it has to be. So, you know, I'll have one or two workouts a week, but other than that, I am just really embracing the easy runs, um, you know, and all the other components of my training. And, you know, speaking of components of training and mistakes, I'll add a a third mistake that I think is when you're training for the middle distance races, I think quote unquote, the little things become even more important. So doing things like drills and strides and strength training, I think are going to be even more impactful on your overall race performance in the 5k than they will for say a marathon or even an ultra marathon, you know? So if you want to run your best 5k and you know, you're already an intermediate, maybe slightly advanced runner. You feel like you're doing some good training, really make sure that you're doing all those other little things like drills two or three times a week strides two or three times a week. Uh, and you know, the strength training to make sure that you're strong enough to actually kick hard at the end of the race and, and really power yourself through that distance. You mentioned that we don't need these overly long training cycles for the 5K. What do you typically recommend for a 5K-focused training cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think it can totally depend, of course. But, you know, somewhere in the 10 to 16-week range, I, I think, is is great for the 5K. Um, it, it The way I think about it is the longer training plans are better for runners who need more aerobic development. And so the extra weeks are essentially base training. I will give a runner more weeks of easier workouts, uh, increasing mileage and long runs if I think that's what they need. But if you have someone, you know, and they ask you for a 5K training plan and you start learning more about this athlete and they're running 60 miles a week with a 15 mile long run and you're like, wow, like you're putting in the work. Maybe you're not doing a ton of hard workouts, but your mileage is high. Your long run is high. You're just running a lot you don't really need a longer training cycle. You've already put in that base. So that is the type of runner who might benefit from a shorter training cycle because, you know, then they can just sort of start transitioning into the more specific work that the 5K demands because they've already done some of that easier work as the foundation. Let's talk about, um, okay, so there's two ways to kind of conceptualize this. Sometimes if we can go back to, you know, uh, being adult recreational runners, we like to, I like to have my runners embark on what I call a season of speed where we're running multiple 5Ks, maybe a 10K over a four, maybe, you know, mostly about a four month period. But this is essentially a track season, right? This is, a, or a, you know, a cross country season. This is essentially what our developing athletes do, what our competitive uh, collegiate athletes do, and that they are racing throughout their training season, if you will, as well. Um, how would you advise somebody set up a, for a self-coached runner, set up a season where they're saying, 
in this four to five month period, I'm going to work on my speed and I'm going to hope to run five, you know, four or five Ks and a 10 K during this time. Yeah. I, I love this idea. This is actually something that I implement with my athletes too, particularly after a marathon season, I'm always recommending let's take a step back from the marathon. Let's focus on some shorter events. We'll do other types of workouts. You'll work on your speed and power and strength. And it really just builds a, a more, uh, a holistic athlete, I think. But if someone's looking at, say, a, a four-month training cycle, um, I would probably want most of their races to be, let's just say, in the second half of, of the season. So let's maybe give them a little bit of a base phase. Uh, let's get them introduced to some faster workouts before they start racing. But for the most part, I think they can be kind of spaced evenly with them maybe being clustered a little closer together at the very end of the season. So let's say you're going to run five races over the final eight weeks of your season. You might run, uh, let's say you're a, you're a 5k runner. This is our, our hot topic today. So your 5,000 is at the end of the season. That's your goal race, sort of like a collegiate athlete. You know, they've got the national championship or the regional championship, whatever it might be. That's their goal. They might have one race the week before, one race two weeks before that. And then, you know, at that point, you're sort of racing either every two weeks or every three weeks. And you can condense those races in, in that time period. And, and this just helps a little bit with periodization, making sure that the earlier phases of your training just aren't super intense. But, you know, everything that I just said could be flipped on its head and you could just run one race every three to four weeks over the course of the entire season, I actually don't think that's a, a necessarily a bad idea either. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the lesson here that you can have a little bit more fun and flexibility with racing 5Ks and, and 3Ks and miles and, and maybe even the 10K than you can with, say, a half marathon. With a half marathon or the marathon, I want to be a little bit more strategic about where we put these races because they take a lot out of you. If you're racing the 3K or the 5K or some of these middle distance events, they don't take as much out of you. Now, if you're racing a 10K on the track and spikes, it's going to beat up your legs and, and you're going to need some recovery time. But for most of us, we're not really doing that. And the opportunity to race a little bit more frequently is, is a great one. I, I think a lot of runners need more racing and you can do that with these middle distances. Talk to me more about having our marathoners take a season away from the marathon to work on speed. Because this is also something that I, I sometimes have to convince some of my marathoners to do, especially those who are really chasing aggressive marathon goals that, hey, no, look, we've run four marathons in 18 months and I know you want to keep getting faster, but let's take some time off from the super long distance stuff, give the body a break from really high mileage and work on some speed instead, because um, from the holistic standpoint, right, it, we want to work different aspects of our ability through different periods of our training year. Uh, but also it's a different mental conceptualization of what it means to push, what it means to back off, what it means to be mentally tough. It's a completely different way of approaching training for some runners to focus more on 5K versus that lots of long, slow, or long, moderate distance. For sure. And, and I think this is such a good idea for so many reasons. Um, I think the biggest reason is that, you know, if we're using your hypothetical runner who's run four marathons in 18 months, 
which is a lot. Which is so <laughs> many marathons. My brain hurts a little bit thinking about it. <laughs> but you're essentially doing marathon training. You're going from marathon training cycle to marathon training cycle to marathon training cycle. You are only training for one type of event. And you are, because of that, not exposing yourself to other types of run training. You know, we're not talking about cycling or lifting weights or or anything that could help your running that you're not doing. We're talking about running that is just structured very differently. So we're not doing as many like VO2 max oriented workouts. You know, we're, we're not racing as frequently. We're not racing those shorter middle distance events typically in a marathon training cycle. And so we're just missing out on a lot of opportunity to develop. So I think of this from a developmental perspective. Most runners who just want to run a marathon, you know, two or three times a year are typically adult runners who didn't come from a cross country and track background. And so I think those runners need a bit more overall athletic development and you don't really get it by training for marathons continuously. I think we've got to be able to train for a middle distance event. You're going to be doing harder workouts. You're going to be doing shorter long runs, but maybe those long runs include some quality work in there. That's very different than just running, say goal marathon pace. Uh, You're going to be doing probably more drills. You're probably going to be lifting weights if you're training in in a way that I would probably recommend. And, and, you know, it's probably going to be heavier weightlifting. It might be different than say more stability oriented stuff that you do during marathon training. And so at the end of the day, what happens? You become a better runner. You improve your performance over 5,000 meters, a mile, two miles, 10K, 8K. It almost doesn't matter. If you're improving, then you have become a better runner. And once you're a better runner, you're probably going to run a better marathon. So I think it's really important from a developmental perspective, but I think it's also really important from this idea of equivalent performances. If you want to say, you know, usually these runners have a big time goal. I want to break four in the marathon or qualify for Boston, whatever it might be. And so that's why they're running marathon after marathon after marathon, because they're so singularly focused on that goal. However, the easiest way to accomplish that goal is probably to get your 5k time down low enough where it makes that marathon time practically easy to accomplish. And so you can imagine this, let's say someone never runs anything longer than 5k. That's the longest race they'll ever going to race, but they're really good. And they get their 5k time down to 14 flat. They're elite. Do you think this person is going to run a four hour marathon? Oh, like no. a 14 minute no, 5k be, runner. Of course not. I would no. They're going to be much faster than that. <laughs> and, and they've never trained for a marathon before. They probably have never done a long run longer than 15 to eight, 17 miles, but you get them to do a couple 20 mile runs. And next thing you know, they're, they've run a 220 marathon and it's because they're a good runner. So there's a lot of different ways that you can become a better runner One of the easiest is by running a lot of short races because you can recover faster, you can run them more frequently, and you're going to practice the skill of racing much more frequently. And I think that's going to make you into a better racer, even at the marathon distance too. 
the skill of racing is something that I, I don't think runners really understand that, that racing, as you've said repeatedly, is a skill. And the only way you can build that skill is through experience. There is no substitute for racing. I, I would say I don't even know that time trials are necessarily the equivalent. I think time trials, solo performances do and can have a place in your training arsenal, but they are not the same as towing the start line with other runners, with, you know, competing against them or with them on the course, fighting it out in that structured way. There is no substitute for actually getting that experience. 100%. I mean, I, I've done many time trials in my day, but they just pale in comparison to the magic of race day. When you have the announcer shooting off that gun, when you have competitors to either side of you, when you have the fans on the side of the course cheering or you hear the announcer because you're on the track and they're yelling out splits, it creates a hormonal environment that is more conducive to you running your best. So, you know, I don't love the time trials, but uh, I, I do think racing actual races more frequently is really going to be beneficial. And I know we've talked a lot about pacing and how that's such a hard skill to master as a runner. You know, that's a big part of what it takes to be skilled at racing. But the other big part of it is just psychological, you know, like racing is hard. I mean, let's just, just imagine what you're doing. It's like, I'm trying to run this distance as hard as I possibly can most normal people don't do these things. Most normal people are eating a bagel and having a coffee on a Saturday morning, and we're waking up early to torture ourselves. And it's very anxiety-producing. You, you really work yourself up beforehand. Everyone knows that when you get in that race, you start you know, telling yourself that you should quit, and you have all these negative thoughts. Part of the skill of racing is mastering the psychological side of the, the stress of running a race. So managing your anxiety before a race, being confident, even though maybe you shouldn't be confident, you know, developing and, and exhibiting that mental toughness in a race to not give up and just simply like, you know, execute your race plan, regardless of how you feel 600 meters out from the finish, you are going to start picking it up 200 meters from the finish. You're going to be in a dead sprint. You're going to do that no matter how bad you feel and that's really hard. That's really, really hard to do. And it takes practice. You're going to have a lot of failures. You know, I look back on my racing career. I, I can't even imagine how many races I've run through four years of cross country and track in high school. And then another four years in college. Most of those races were, were not good. Most of the races in my entire career, I would say were mediocre or subpar, but they gave me the foundation that allowed me then to run just a couple breakthrough races and, uh, you know, I just recently had my college cross country coach on my own podcast. And he said, you will look back on your running career after a lifetime and you might have a handful of races that were perfect, where everything went well, where the stars aligned and you not only ran a PR, but you felt good doing it. You know, you executed everything well, everything fell into place. And, and that's like almost a little bit sobering, but it's also very encouraging Bad races are going to happen. Bad workouts are going to happen. We don't have to beat ourselves up about it. Instead, we can simply keep charging forward and keep executing. A big part of that is just experience and repetition. I'm going to quote Michael Scott here and say, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like what you, I love that, first of all. I absolutely love that, that 
you know, for especially for a lot of us adult runners who found this sport as adults and focus more on the longer distance stuff, you know, a lot of runners experience is really extreme race anxiety because I think they race so infrequently that the races that they do participate in become these gigantic, terrifying events when you're only racing two or three total times per year. Of course, those specific events are going to have this absolutely outsized place in how you view them. And then you're going to get yourself all worked up about it. You're going to spend six months training for something. And then, yeah, it's going to be this big effing deal. Um, And taking a step back and like just doing it over and over and over again, racing, race the mile, go race in that weird 4K that the down the street charity has. Go, you know, race that 5K, race that 8K, you know, like giving yourself the opportunity to collect enough of these experiences so you can start having, like you said, these standout, amazing race day performances, those are going to become more likely the more that you are able to race. Exactly. Yes, 100%. The more you race, the more you're not going to put these races on a pedestal. And, you know, like... Because racing is a skill, like I'm, I'm a bit appalled by people who only race once or twice a year, but yet have these big, you know, time goals in these races, because I would be a nervous wreck if I only, if I race that infrequently, you know, I, I think just because of me running track in high school and college, it really like, it just throws you into the fire, right? Like, oh no, you're not racing two races a year. You're racing two races this Saturday in that meet, you have two hours in between the races. So you better do a little cool down and you better start warming up again and refuel. And you just start going, well, just another day. Well, I'm just going to go suffer for a couple minutes now on the track. And you you know, you stop getting so worried about it. And, you know, I think about it like, uh, you know, you invite a young person to come watch your children as a babysitter and they're overwhelmed because all of a sudden they're watching three kids. Whereas like, you know, I feel like an elite parent because like, I'm just in this every day. I don't get anxious having to, you know, bring three kids across the country by myself because I'm trained. (laughs) I am a trained parent and I can do that. Whereas someone who just has no experience with it is just going to be like, oh my God, like how many snacks do I pack? And, And are they allowed screen time and all these things? And you're like, this is, this is like someone who doesn't race. You just don't know what to do. You've got to race just over and over and over again. It's so helpful. I mean, I think, I think a lot of runners who are in that situation are in that situation. The runs and like, obviously there's a, there's a balance here. We're not saying you need to go out and race every single weekend. And I know a ton of people who do park run right over in the UK or park run here in the United States. I do not want you to race your park run every single weekend, yes. right? You got to take Don't some weekends off. There is a balance. There is a balance. But I I think it's far more common that we have these runners, especially these adult runners, who are only racing once or twice a year, two or three times a year tops, who are going to these races freaking terrified, but they think that's normal. They Obviously, we all get pre-race nerves, right? We're excited for about what's to come, especially if it's an A race, right? But it, like you'd probably, you probably don't realize what you're feeling is not normal because you aren't racing enough. Yeah. And, you know, I've been talking a lot about how training should always be cyclical. You know, you should always sort of move from rest to easy running to hard training to your peaking slash running your goal race phase. And then the cycle repeats itself. As long as we're being respectful of this cycle, you can run a lot of races within that hard training and peaking phase of this cycle. So 
running a park run every single weekend doesn't respect this cycle because then there's no rest and there's no easy training. We should probably create a training program where the races are a little bit more strategic in how they're scheduled. Because if you race every weekend, it's hard to prioritize any of the races. And if you can't prioritize the races, you're probably not getting as much out of yourself. So let's talk briefly about workouts. And obviously, right, I don't want to like give away all the secrets. I know that you are a coach and you have plans and coaching available. And I am a coach and I have plans and coaching available. So if somebody's really looking for like the complete package, they have resources beyond listening to this podcast and furiously taking notes. But (laughs) broadly speaking, you mentioned training for a 5K, right? You got easy runs, you have long runs, you have that moderate running, maybe lactate threshold. But I think what people really want to hear about is the sexy 5K pace stuff. Um, Tell us about how you think about including that kind of pace work in a 5K cycle. Yeah, so I like to approach a goal pace from two different directions, from the faster side of it and from the slower side of it. So now we kind of hit on these support paces, this concept I I briefly mentioned earlier, where um, I think one of the things that can be introduced early in a 5k training cycle are these support paces. So for example, you can run very short repetitions at say mile race pace early in a training cycle, especially if there's say like 200 meters, it's probably going to take you under a minute. And you know, this is a, 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 not super challenging workout, especially let's say you're doing four by 200 meters. That's only a half mile worth of speed work. That's not very difficult at all. And so one thing I like to do is expose runners to speed that's faster than 5k pace pretty early in a cycle, but let's do it in a way that's not very challenging. So a workout like four times 200 meters at your mile race pace with a, let's say two minute jog recovery fits that bill. We are getting exposure to a very fast pace in a way that probably isn't going to, you know, peak us too early or leave us just too sore or fatigued afterward. And then we can also do workouts that are slower than our 5K pace. And I think lactate threshold or tempo, um, uh, anaerobic threshold, probably all about the same thing. You know, this is a great pace because I think it physiologically works on one of the most important functions of our endurance, which is to process and clear and use lactate. And if we can be better at using lactate, we're going to be better in any middle distance race. So my 5k training plans are probably going to include a good amount of lactate threshold work, a good amount of regular running at mile race pace, And then over the course of the training plan, those workouts might converge and you start, you might start seeing workouts that include 5k pace and mile race pace. And so I'm borrowing workouts from like my college coach and things like that. But, you know, you might do something like, um, four by 800 meters at goal 5k pace plus four by 200 meters at your mile race pace. So you're running two miles worth of speed work at your goal 5k pace, and then you're ending with some more turnover oriented work. Uh, that I think is a wonderful 5k workout. Uh, we can make that a little bit more challenging. You know, maybe we go up to six by 800 meters. Now, all of a sudden, this is a very challenging workout. Um, and, and I think the workouts gradually have to become more specific to the goal race, you know, just like we do in any training plan. So, 
you know, an example workout that I think is probably the most specific to the 5k is something like three times a mile at your goal 5k pace with a pretty short recovery, maybe a one minute recovery. Uh, I, I could stretch that to two minutes. It doesn't really bother me too much, but if you can do that workout in training, then when you rest, when you taper, when you've got that, you know, the magic of race day with the announcer and all that, you're probably going to be able to, uh, hit those paces for the entire 5k without any rest. So uh, the way I think about it is, is a lot of aerobic development with lactate threshold and long runs, generally high mileage, whatever that means for you. Uh, and then a fair amount of, of very fast work. And that can take the form of those 200 meter workouts, like I mentioned, but also we're going to do things like strides. Uh, I might favor things like uphill strides or hill sprints a little bit more with a middle distance runner, because it's going to work a little bit more power than say a flat stride. And those workouts will generally become more and more specific to the 5k distance itself. I love that. I love that. I think I, you and I need to compare notes because I feel like our training philosophies of this are very, very similar. One of the things I like to do, knowing the the types of runners I typically work with is that, you know, I, a lot of runners that I work with do not really know what their mile pace is. What I'd like to do is I like to program, um, like minute hill repeats, right. At 5k effort, which for most people thinking of a cycle is just running uphill as fast as they possibly can for a minute. And, uh, that, I mean, then once we transition onto flat work, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so, this is so much less intense than running up a hill for a minute or 90 seconds at a time. And of course they have to learn how to pace themselves up the hill too, right? We only typically go out too fast once, uh, on those uphill repeats, but, um, I love that. I also I'm curious to see your uh, philosophy on increasing volume. Cause obviously when we're running super long distance, we're running marathons and half marathons, right? We might start, let's say we start at 45 miles per week and we're peaking at 65 or 70 miles per week. I don't, my 5k plans, my 5k train doesn't do that. Like our volume might increase a little bit. Like if we start at 40, we might go to 45 or 48 by the end, but it's more that the proportion of intensity starts to change a little bit. Yeah. Well, first let me say, I, I love the hill workouts that you're doing and, you know, running fast up a hill is sort of like running fast at altitude. You come back to sea level and you're like, oh, Hey, it's actually way easier with all this oxygen in the air. Same thing when you get on a track after you've been doing these workouts on a hill, you've built all this strength and power and you know, it, it just transfers really, really well to, to flat ground running, which is why I love programming hill workouts for any kind of race. You know, I, I think hill workouts are so valuable in, in such a profound way from a developmental perspective that, you know, you shouldn't just run hills because you're training for a hilly race. You know, there's, there's a place for hill work in, I think, practically any training plan. Um, so in terms of mileage, yeah, I mean, I, this is where we probably differ a little bit. I think I probably do continue to add mileage, um, making sure that it's in balance with the intensity, because I, I think you're right. A big problem is when you try to do both, I think you can do both, but you can't have bigger mileage increases like you might have with a marathon plan with the intensity of 5k training. So I do think the increases have to be a little bit more uh, conservative because, you know, it's almost like you have a certain amount to spend every week of energy and it can either go to mileage or intensity a little bit spread to both, but you know, it becomes really challenging to increase your mileage at a, a 
somewhat rapid rate and start doing some of these really challenging workouts. So yes, I will increase the mileage, but more conservatively and probably even more conservatively when we start doing some of those really intense workouts, like, you know, first four weeks of the plan, first six weeks of the plan, when the workouts aren't too bad, when we're doing mostly lactate threshold, you know, in those weeks, I may increase it similar, more similarly to a, to a marathon plan. And, and I think one of the big reasons that's my philosophy is because, you know, we were talking about what percentage of these race distances is aerobic and it's pretty substantial. Uh, and so I've just found that most adult runners are most lacking in aerobic development. And so, you know, even if you're training for the mile, I might have you do a good long run and a fair amount of mileage because I think at the end of the day, it's still going to be helpful for you. And my job isn't necessarily to get you to the run, get you to run the fastest race possible eight weeks from now. It's to get you to run really well eight weeks from now, but also set you up for the next six to 12 months of your training. I'm a, I'm a hard cosine with like two underlines on that lacking in aerobic development. <laughs> I think that, yep, that is, that is typically an area where I see most runners really have some sort of deficit, whether it's profound or slight. Uh, I think aerobic work is the answer to a lot of questions that some runners have. Obviously, right, it's all important in different amounts, but the aerobic stuff, the importance cannot be understated. Can I just share a ridiculous story? So I just published a video on my YouTube channel talking about the workouts I ran before I ran my PR in the mile. And they're sort of BS. Like, (laughs) I ran a mile PR after I graduated college, four years of running some of the hardest workouts I I will ever run. And I ran a mile PR after doing mostly threshold work. And so, you know, yes, there were some 400s and 200s that were at mile race pace or a little bit faster, but it's almost startling how little fast work I did before running a two second PR in the mile. And I didn't feel great during the mile, but like, I don't know, you run a PR and you don't feel good. It's like, who cares? Like you, you got the result and you're not there to feel good. You're there to run well. And and I think it just goes to show you can do some pretty good damage with aerobic training. So, you know, if, if there's one lesson that runners are going to take from this, it's, you know, hopefully let's learn pacing and, and that kind of skill. But also these middle distance races are mostly aerobic. And most of your gains in these races are probably going to come from the aerobic side of your training. What I'm also hearing you saying is that you pioneered Norwegian lactate threshold training. <laughs> yes. Quite, quite a ways before yeah, I pioneered <laughs> it's become it. popular this is, now. This is my idea. <laughs> no, it was funny because like three weeks out from the mile, I like ran my first workout in like a month or, or three weeks or so. And it was like 2000 meters at threshold, which is a very short workout. That's barely a workout, especially when you consider the kind of shape I was in at the time. And, uh, I was like, how did I run a mile PR? This is crazy. But Hey, it just, I think it it goes to show one, the aerobic impact of your training on your racing. And number two, even if you don't have great workouts leading into a race, don't let that stop you from going after a PR because you never know what weird stuff your physiology is doing. You might just be super rested, uh, but still in good shape and you can just execute. 
Jason, thank you so much for being here today and sharing all of your 5K wisdom with us. This was a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, if anybody is interested in learning more about you, like if anybody doesn't know who you are and isn't following you and isn't listening to your podcast and isn't watching your YouTube channel, um, they should be and tell them how they can do that. Yes. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, it's the Strength Running Podcast, the Strength Running YouTube channel. You go to strengthrunning.com. Those are the three main places that that you're going to find me. If you're super into Instagram, you can find me at JasonFitz1. But other than that, strengthrunning.com is my home base. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at runningexplained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.